on this episode of Connected, we talk about the IoT devices. Will they lead to the rise of Skynet? What you can do to secure your data? And what really happens when you click agree on that EULA? Plus, CES 2016 preview. All this and more on Connected. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is Connected, Episode 2, Securely. Recorded November 23rd, 2015. Welcome to Connected, Everything IoT. My name is David Danto. I'm your host, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to talking about a lot of interesting things regarding uh, IoT security on this show today. I have with me a couple of uh, security experts um, and experts in the space that will hopefully give us some uh, information as to uh, how secure and uh, unsecure everything is that we're playing with. So let me introduce, have them introduce themselves. Uh, Jason, why don't you start? Hi, I'm Jason Harris. I'm the Managing Principal Consultant for Security in the Americas. Uh, so I've been working in the, in the security industry for around about 15 years now. And uh, certainly over the last two years, I've seen a massive increase in interconnected um, devices, what we're calling, some people are calling Internet of Things. Uh, it is an area that's very, um, very interesting in terms of the risk it exposes us all to. Um, so we're looking forward to a good conversation. Thank you, Jason. Bradford? Uh, my name is Bradford Ben. Um, during my day job, I'm with Harmon Professional uh, in charge of large network systems. In my nighttime after hours role, I'm a card carrying member of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I've been interested in securing my data and my company's data for about the past 20 years, including my previous stints as a network administrator. Terrific. Thank you. And finally, Phil? Hi, my name is Phil Langer. I'm the president. Can you hear me all right? Absolutely. Okay, just didn't see it come up on there. I'm sorry. Uh, so I'm the president of Show & Tell. We're a New York-based digital signage company. We uh, operate and care for hundreds of uh, video screens all over the world, including some of the large video displays in Times Square. And so, as you can imagine, uh, we're very concerned about security and making sure that uh, these powerful communication tools uh, don't get um, uh, misused and uh, are treated properly and uh, cared and fed well uh, from everything from content to operations to security. So uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about that as the show goes on. Terrific, Phil. Thanks very much. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. Before we get into our conversation today, I'd actually like to take a look at a quick little clip uh, from a movie I'm sure many of us have seen. Um, and then uh, that'll kind of spur us into talking about things. So hold on. We thought it was a communications error, but now it looks like the virus. Early warning in Alaska's down. What? Signals from half our satellites are scrambled beyond recognition. What about the missile silos, the subs? We've lost contact. All access inquiries to your supervisor. Let's pray to God this works. Skynet defense system now activated. 
failure? No. Like, I don't know what it is. Tony, what the hell is going on? Daddy! Kay, what are you doing here? It's the reason everything's falling apart. Skynet has become self-aware. In one hour, it will initiate a massive nuclear attack on its enemy. What enemy? Us! Humans! So that's a very interesting uh, uh, look at security and what's going on. Maybe perhaps a little bit paranoid, but then again, maybe not. Um, we're hearing stories about uh, self-driving cars being hacked and... Uh, uh, people's data going all over the place and everybody clicking on uh, user license agreements without reading the 57 pages that go before it. Who knows what we're giving away? So uh, to give us a little perspective, Jason, let me go to you first. I know that you've got a lot of background in the security space. What's changed over the last three or four or five years where we we're, were talking about security and we really weren't talking about it, at least not in the public consciousness before that? Uh, certainly. So I think the, the Terminator film is, is quite thought-provoking in terms of we're actually not that far away from that that state. So three, four, five years ago, we pretty much relied on having a hardened perimeter um, that protected our organizations against external threats. Most of the internal threats were fairly minimal or were treated in that way, certainly. But obviously over the last, you know, particularly three years, we've seen this explosion in interconnected devices. So the first wave really we saw um, were particularly mobile devices. Uh, smartphones, etc. Uh, but increasingly over the last two years, I've seen lots of organizations that when we go in and actually to carry out a vulnerability assessment or a penetration test of the organization, who say we only have, let's say, 10,000 devices, we find another 5,000. And they're often things like smart cameras, smart printers, smart devices of, you know, myriad of types of devices that either they don't know existed or certainly didn't know were IP connected and had the capability to be remotely controlled. Um, and certainly now we're starting to see this wave of smart devices in the home. And you made a really good point earlier, which was what I was going to raise, which is who reads that 50-page EULA that you click on? You say, yeah, 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 fine. So the biggest issue that I see with all this, a lot of the issue is that People are clicking on those links, so allowing access to those devices, to unknown networks, unknown systems, who knows. Uh, and the same goes for um, users inside of businesses, and all of a sudden, where is your network? You know, the kind of Skynet thing. All of a sudden, you've got network links into another five or six or 10 or 20 networks who have uh, an interesting view on security. Uh, most of the, the high-profile hacks that we've seen have been through a smaller, weaker organization into the big corporates. Um, and certainly the amount, of, the, the amount of information that's being gathered and utilized is uh, just exponentially rising. So, you know, somebody gave me a good example the other day. He said that, you know, his, um, his intelligent thermostat that he has at home 
I wonder if it's actually collecting data. I don't know because when I go to Google now and I click on and I do a search in Google, I'm, I miraculously get these pop-ups for you know filters for air conditioning appear at my local Home Depot store. Now, how do they how do they know that I'm you know I've got air conditioning and maybe I need a new filter? So um, we've also seen um, reputational damage caused by this. We're we're actually working with a big client over in. Um, on the west coast where they were they were actually hit by somebody hacking into and changing their intelligent traffic sign i won't say what i actually said but it was it was pretty rude and it made the front page of the press so we're actually seeing people uh, utilizing it exploiting it the thing that worries me more and i think worries most people is that now um, intelligence agencies in general are quite happy to just ingest any data that they can get on on anybody, because who knows, they might need it one day. Yeah, no, that's so, that's a brilliant thought, and 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 I think it was one of the comedians who said who made a whole uh, video that Facebook was really an invention of the CIA, so it knows everything that we're doing. Um, Phil, why don't you comment on that a little bit? Because I know in in my past life, I was responsible for a whole bunch of those signs um, on uh, in Times Square, and you're responsible for a lot more than I am. Um, is that really a risk for you in terms of reputational damage of, a, of an organization with one of these large signs, somebody putting up some content on there that really shouldn't be out in public? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. The fear is definitely the, um, you know, the expectation always needs to be there that that, that could happen. Um, and it would, of course, be terrible. The, the, the larger the, the communication device is, the more power it wields, if you will. And uh, so, you know, reputational damage is something that we're 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 very concerned about. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a tricky. Um, you know, it's 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 the internet is something we live and die by because we can't do without it. We wouldn't be able to operate this industry if it wasn't there. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's it's that conundrum between how much security and how much convenience do you allow uh, uh, with certain prudence to to having the correct security so that you're protecting your clients and their reputations. Well, so, I think Jay, yeah. Jason also made the point before that, that, that and, and, you know, Bradford or anybody, you guys can pick up on this, um, security isn't what we thought it was five years ago. Five years ago, you either operated the system or it was secure and you couldn't get in. No connections, no you know firewalls, Katie barred the door, all the different strategies. I think we've learned, uh, based on who's been you know, hit with hacks, that border security doesn't work. And all those things that we were doing to prevent ourselves from operating equipment um, probably was the wrong way of approaching it. Now the systems themselves need to be smarter to know not right. to do something stupid. I mean, is that how, you know, what do you guys think about that? Well, I was going to say one of the biggest changes I've seen is literally walking into an environment and either being on their wireless network or on their wired network. And basically you're inside now and border security is gone. And now it comes down to access control lists and being able to get to things because, like you said, everything's connected. Uh, you can have people who tweet stuff that shows up on the big board. You have to worry about that for reputation damage. But to me, the bigger thing is coming in for a meeting, going into a conference room, plugging in a computer into the closest network jack, and poof, you're on the network. It's amazingly simple. There's also the other side, which me being paranoid is the 
ooh, open Wi-Fi that someone doesn't know about because someone put it at their desk to make their life easier. I'm wandering around looking for it. I pick up my handy-dandy iPhone. I see all the IP addresses and all the networks that are available, and I get in. I think the ultimate problem at the moment isn't the security systems. It's the security users who don't actually use it and end up letting the door be unlocked. Yeah, certainly from, from our experience, we're seeing that most of that, most of the hacks and most of the, um, most of our clients when we actually assess their, you know, their, their environment, the biggest weakness, the biggest gap is in people and process, not so much in technology. So you can just see on the point there, an easy point, which is, you know, open, open Wi-Fi or easy access to a network within a, within a building via wireless or, or via wired. So if there was a good process in place that restricted that from happening and people were educated as to why that wasn't a good idea, um, we'd actually avoid a lot of these issues. What, what we're finding now, what we've found really is that we have to lead our clients and our users more towards protecting the data than the, the actual network and the environment. So the crown jewels is usually the data. Um, in, in case of signage, it's not so much the data, it's obviously being able to manipulate the data that's put onto that signage. Uh, but certainly we, we, we're, still, we're still working in a world where I think most users think about, okay, I've got a firewall, I've got a PC that's you know, running AV, uh, IT look after my security, I don't really need to worry about things. Uh, it's remarkably easy to, to convince, uh, as, we, as we know, convince the user just to click yes to anything including pop-up boxes, um, harvest credentials, game privilege access. So the user is um, unfortunately definitely the, the weak spot usually. Aren't we though talking about an era where um, the nature of what we do from a security standpoint needs to change? And I'll, I'll give two examples of this that I've heard casually in conversation. Um, uh, an AV consultant friend of mine was telling me about how he was building um, a large series of restaurants for a large organization and all of their foodstuffs were stored in refrigerators and freezers in their restaurants. And these are all managed on the network using a central console and anybody could hack into this console um, and set all the refrigerators down to stop refrigerating. And they would have millions of dollars of losses um, if that were to happen. So the refrigerators, it's not the prevention of getting to the refrigerator, getting to the console. It has to be the console that goes back and say, why do you want to turn off the refrigerators? I know that's a dumb thing to do. That should be something that, that's protected via some additional layer. Um, another example of that, and, and any of you guys can speak up, there's another example of that um, would be the idea that when, when we're talking about the self-driving car, we've already seen a story about how an internet-connected car was hacked into. Um, on the Good Wife episode, I don't know if you guys watched that, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, they had an example of somebody who was in a self-driving car. Uh, obviously, this was fictitious, which then, you know, hit another passenger and crippled somebody. Well, shouldn't we be creating systems in that type of environment that prevent the hack? So how much is prevention and how much is intelligent programming is my question. Uh, I'll, I'll um, answer that really. I think the, the challenge we have now is the these internet-connected devices most of them are very much consumer grade or they're, they're definitely, they're aimed at um, low cost market or as a value add. I mean, my, my friend was showing me the other day how he can control his fridge from his iPhone app. 
I said, that's awesome. You know, you can control your fridge and your washing machine. Now, unfortunately, that that's you know, it's a value add to a client or to to a consumer. The amount of security that's built into those is not really industrial grade. So, we're opening up the world to all of these myriad of connection points into either your own personal world or for your personal world into the business world. And certainly, we need to. It's almost like we need to time out and say, right, okay, if we're going to do this. We need to actually do it maturely and look at the security in the life cycle of the whole of the program, yeah, the, the application, the data, how it's used, etc. Um, that's not happening. That, I don't see that happening. I just see people rushing out. Wouldn't it be great to control my washing machine from the internet? I'll just sign that ULO and move on. The fact that that same phone is almost certainly their business phone also has access to sensitive data you know, kind of doesn't even cross the user's mind. And certainly, you know, the washing machine manufacturer, no, he doesn't care about that either. Guys, any other thoughts? I was going to say, I think that's a very valid point. There's always my first question, which is, why do I need an IP-controlled washing machine, toaster, or refrigerator? I understand the thermostat a little bit more, because I'll admit I use it. I leave home, and I forget to turn down the thermostat before I go on vacation, and I can go online. But then comes the other thing of I'm a nerd and I've set up firewalls and I've set up access control lists on my switches and I'll hold up for the camera. I set up the two iPhones, one that'll get me fired, one that'll get me divorced, let you guys pick which one's which, but the whole separation of work phone and personal phone so that, you know, there is no security breach there that's likely and I take my security pretty seriously. And I yeah, do Bradford, let me let me let me pause you there for a second, and I want to, I want you to answer this because I want to come back to you. Um, I I I know it's least common denominator. I know it's consumerization. But when I left uh, financial services um, and went into work for a non-financial services company, all of a sudden, hey, I didn't need to carry two devices anymore. I was still finding myself emailing a file from my work PC to my home PC before I realized, you know, they're on the same network. I can just transfer now. It's so much easier that way. That's why I think consumers do that and avoid that separation is because of how hard traditional IT has make it, made it to do their job. Uh, organizations will now um, say, no, no, you're not allowed to use any public cloud file sharing services. And, and instead of taking the no, people whip out one of those iPhones that you showed and they, and they go to Box or Dropbox or anything else because the no is the wrong answer. The right answer would have been, you know, partnering as an IT organization saying, all right, I understand what you need to do. Here's the approved way to do it. Let's make it easy for you. But, you know, IT has been, been an organization of no for years. 100% agree with you. IT's uh, favorite answer is no because their entire job performance is based on system uptime. So you're going to do everything you can to keep your system uptime as high as possible. This is where it comes down to training the users and explaining to the users why this is important. Uh, yes, I'm one of those weird nerds that reads the EULA and goes, you know, I don't want to put my pictures up on Flickr or I don't want to put them up on Google because I want to own the rights to my pictures, so I pay for my own hosting. Same thing with the email, same thing with other things. But part of it is I think that IT has a responsibility, and those of us who know more about it have a responsibility to explain why these practices are important, to explain the if it's free, you're probably the product to explain how ad tracking goes in and why, you know, you don't want to check remember password. Even though it's easy, 
it's not secure. And I think that's the trade-off we're always fighting is which is easy, which is secure. And the two can, it's very hard to make the two coexist, but with a little bit of thought, it can be done that way. To be honest, you know, looking at having this iPhone that has AirWatch security on it and various keys and certificates is a lot harder than having my personal cell phone that still has a couple certificates on it for VPN. But it's set up very differently because the company says you shouldn't use Dropbox because of the EULA. You shouldn't use this service. Here, use our service instead. But they've done a very poor job of explaining that to people of the here's our service that you should use. You should use transfer dot blah, 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 because we pay for that to transfer the services. And you can store files up there. But most companies, they there's a problem between the users and the IT department, and I think is the root of the vast majority of the security things. We're starting probably, to see a number of organizations um, delve into bimodal IT, delve into you know the IT organization that maintains the central um, uh, core, and then a whole separate organization within the lines of business or business units that are there to get things done that don't want to have to make themselves subject to those rules because they see those rules as being too restrictive or too arcane. Um, they want to be a little bit more flexible based on what's going on in the market. And that bimodal is a result of all of this. I agree with that. And I was going to say the other, sorry, the other thing I see as a problem is users are just saying, I need to have access to my data, not what topic, what task are they trying to accomplish? And if they're saying, I'm trying to secure, securely share a file with one of our vendors, that's a completely different answer than I need to send a large file securely to a vendor. And I think that's one of the things that bimodal IT is getting better at. But sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that from a as a security consultant, I, I've seen a big shift over the last two years in who my clients are. So my clients now are probably about 50% of the client. The actual real client is not IT. It's a business person within IT or IT related, but actually part of IT group. So they're the one, they're the people that we're doing lots of work with on things like cloud security, and yeah, we're going to go cloud anyway. We've already gone cloud. Maybe now's the time to secure it. Um, so certainly we've seen that power shift, and and certainly we've seen security budget spend. Actually, who holds the budget shift from specifically with IT security to well, you can have your renewals as a budget, but everything else has to be business driven. Mm. Phil, are you seeing a lot more of this bimodal nature as well amongst your clients and uh, and customers? Um, not as it not so to... much. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. It's a fascinating discussion, and to a certain extent, it's a bit over my head from a security standpoint, but I am familiar with some of the procedures that are happening. I can tell you as a business owner, um, I get very concerned about um, security as it makes uh, our flexibility a bit cumbersome. So in a way, it's almost like if I were to allow the people who maintain the city streets to designate what hours we can drive on the streets, well, we'd probably have much reduced uh, ability to drive on those streets. So we can't necessarily let those folks um, just call the shots 
we have to have a good balance between listening to their expert advice about how to properly maintain those streets, or in this case, the metaphor, our, our network systems, but also we have, to we have to maintain this flexibility that allows us to be competitive. Like uh, we're a small company and we have to compete against some very large companies who have larger and more cumbersome security protocol, uh, legal restrictions that you mentioned before. And so we have to, one, be clever about that, but also maybe sometimes more manual about our um, file transfers and so forth to, so that we know that we're being prudent, we're being secure, uh, but we're maybe not necessarily, um, you know, using multiple secure servers all over the world. Maybe we use a sneaker net and it could be just as secure in those sort of sense. So, you know, it might be a low tech answer to solve that security issue, uh, but still maintaining security. I mean, I don't want to downplay the importance of that. No, it makes perfect sense. That's like that old parable about, uh, you know, do we invent the NASA space pen or do we just use a pencil? Um, I, I, I'm t totally on board with that. Um, we haven't really talked as a group very much about the concept of the security of our own personal data, especially in the world of uh, the Internet of Things where there are so many sensors out there. I know one of you mentioned, and, and I certainly have experienced, that I've gone shopping on an Internet website um, and I've priced out some things that I wasn't quite ready to buy yet, but I looked at them and I looked at some of the reports on them. Um, and then my next web search, all of a sudden the pop-up boxes were for that device that I was looking for. Um, when we're using our mobile phones, when we're using tablets, when we're accepting these end-user license agreements, um, is there anybody out there looking out for the security of our data? Um, I just and, jumped and, in as a, as a regular consumer guy. To, that bugs the heck out of me, what you just mentioned, that scenario. Um, and I think it is becoming more mainstream about ad blockers and a product that I use a lot called Ghostery, which is a real uh, a great product for browsers that allows the blocking of those cookies and tracking mechanisms. Um, uh, and it little, literally uh, is a little watchdog pop-up. Um, anybody can use it. It's free to install in any browser. And it's a great tool to educate me about what of my information is being watched. Yeah, I and, really I, and we don't want to we don't want to advocate just one product. There are any number yeah, of products. There's, there's a there lot of great that. products, yeah. but but something that educates the user that allows you to know what's being listened to and what's being watched to really make that more transparent uh, is becoming more mainstream that more people can use and understand what's going on. I really advocate for that. And I, I will say one of the things that's been interesting to me just from a from a knowledge and trying to learn more instance has been the whole ad network and how ad tracking works. And yes, I'm using anonymizers and and blockers of cookies and things like that. But the fact that it's not the websites talking to each other directly, it's the ad servers talking to you. So if you were at Amazon or you were at Frugal or you were at Alibaba and it says, oh, you were looking at this widget, your ad tracker knows you're, now knows you're looking at that widget. So now your next ad server, whether it be through Google or double clicks or whoever, will then push those things as well. It's not the website itself, it's an entire back network of just ad tracking that I think people aren't aware of, of, that's how you're the product. And it actually becomes a double-edged sword, in my opinion. We yeah, don't wanna yeah, pay, pay subscription fees for online content, but we don't wanna have the ads that pay for online content. Sorry, go ahead. 
Yeah, it's interesting that um, I've lived in in two countries with very strong privacy laws, state protection laws, so the UK and Australia. And moving to the US was an enlightening experience for me that very quickly, I think within my first two weeks, I realized that actually uh, in the US, pretty much can assume that you have no, uh, no rights to privacy of your data because once you give it to one company, there's actually nothing stopping them from sharing that around. And of course, we're seeing this you know, commercial gain from sharing data. So um, that's something that that's, you know, I can see different states are starting to clamp down on, but the data's already out there. There's so much of it out in the wild and it's on everyone's system. And of course, as, a, as an ethical hacker, I never target the big boy. I always target, let's target a little tiny company that has a link to the other company or let's target somebody who I know has a lot of data. So. Yeah, somebody targeting those um, those ad companies or those yeah those those that backbone as you call it, Brad. That's where you know I can guarantee people are already either hacked them already or are targeting them because of the amount of consolidated data that they have. All right, so then we've talked about um, protecting reputational risk and protecting firms' large data, and we've talked about how you know there really isn't any privacy, certainly in the U.S but that we're not aware of the privacy, certainly two, three, four clicks past that as to who you know, our license agreements are letting our third parties connect with. We haven't really talked at all about you know, nefarious uses of, of, of data and in, in hacking and interpreting. And I don't mean just shutting a guy's website down. I mean, we've got situations now where blood pressure monitors and blood glucose monitors and you know, both in hospital networks and, and consumers um, are working from sensors again, on the Internet of Things, over to devices. Who's to say that, you know, I don't take a piece of medicine or, or, or medicate or a doctor prescribe a piece of medicine based on incorrect data that's been hacked into from sensors that were lost uh, out of control, not in security? Is that something we really need to? We're back to, you know, Sky, Skynet again. Is that something we really need to start protecting against? Are we just uh, living in too naive yeah. a space right now? No, we, we do, Dave, and that's, that's an area that is, I'm seeing a huge growth on with our clients in that space. There's so many interconnected um, and, uh, and <clears throat> IP-connected um, medical devices and medical systems um, that that data that's in those systems is you know, life or death information. So if you administer you know, penicillin to a, to a patient who's had their record hacked that says, do not administer penicillin because they're allergic, that's life or death. Um, same thing with uh, all these interconnected devices that gathering, um, let's say, blood work and immediately um, sending that blood work to a clinician's iPad. That's not science fiction. That's, that's widespread. And we're only just starting to see those organizations that actually have that in place catching up with that. Oh, um, yeah, actually, probably maybe we should actually assess the security of that. And maybe we should start spending the money to catch up um, because they're, they're really, you know, it's been very um, driven by the need to put something in quickly, and then don't worry, we'll catch up with security later. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a real risk. It's something that is growing and will only continue to grow. It seems very simple for everyone. Hey, great, you know, we can feed this data everywhere now. You know, we're seeing, we're seeing um, hospitals feeding that data in real time, backs and forwards to paramedics in the field. So, you know, the, the ramifications of if you manipulate that data or you 
you know, actually intercept it or do something with it or um, delete that data is significant. Uh, I think you touched on the point just now where you're saying about you know nefarious use. Absolutely, we've seen the last last two years particularly the shift has gone from targeting credit card data to targeting uh, personally identifiable information because if you can claim somebody's identity and create fraud in that identity, you can make a lot more money. And all of that is funded by organized crime, for sure. And I do think that there, as Jason said, he has very valid points of there's very limited handshakes and people are just doing their get it to work as fast as possible. But I think there's a big fear in the corporate market for having a third party review their products and check for security leaks and look for problems because there are a lot of people who will volunteer their times or wanting to be a white hat instead of a black hat and say, oh, look, if you do this, here are all the problems that come out of it. And a lot of the companies are very hesitant to do that because they don't want to share their data and risk a, a breach. They'd rather just hide it all and hope for the best. And I think that's a big miss that a lot of people are missing. I also think a lot of companies aren't even doing the basics. Like, for instance, encrypting your email. How easy is it to make it that you can't forward an email without the encrypted data? But most doctor's offices or financial offices don't even think about encrypting email. They just send you stuff and go to a secure website and hope for the best. There's all these simple practices, I think, that are just getting us used to the idea of security that we're all missing. Yeah, if I would just add one other quick thing to that. Um, in terms of the more critical, as history shows us, the more critical we uh, systems we become reliant upon, the more important it is uh, to have a plan B and a plan C. Uh, if we look at uh, aviation and medical, you know, technologies, there is always a backup to fall back on in case the new technology fails. And this is going to be true with network security. And those are that's really just an opportunity for us as service providers to help foster the education of those backup systems and, and the use and the implementation of those. So, so as a last point, guys, uh, I have to say that if I'm tuning into this uh, webcast to get a, a nice, comfortable feeling about where everything is going, I, I, I ain't got it. Um, I'm more scared than anything else. Are we going to need a tipping point? Is there going to be some catastrophe or some large event that will finally make us take the, the concept of uh, security of the Internet and Internet of Things seriously? I certainly hope it doesn't come to that. I'm, I am seeing that the industry, though, um, certainly the, um, the commercial side of the industry, are, are, I think they're at that tipping point now. So we've seen an influx of requests to assess um, really, those kind of roadside systems, the, you know, those interconnected devices that have traditionally not had as much security, but now there's that realization that actually now we need to look at the security of those those extended networks. And I'm starting to see as well that at least state-based legislation is driving some of that activity. So I'm hoping that you know the tipping point is there now. We're starting to go down. Um, the, the path of assessing and remediating those those environments that we traditionally haven't done. Um, and things like you know, secure SCADA systems where that's handshake and communication is encrypted, they're starting to be pushed out as well. So let's just hope we don't see one of those horror stories like 
you know, something really bad happens to, to be the, the tipping point. I think the industry is at that point now and just needs a bit of a nudge. And I, I do, as I say, I do think the tipping point has already started for some industries. Uh, you look at the Sony Pictures hack and how much that's affected that industry with security. And in the entertainment industry, it's gotten a lot more solid as to how the information secured, the networks being separated from each other and it being more difficult to get from network A to network B. But I think part of it is us as consumers have to decide it's that tipping point. I reached the tipping point on my own a couple of months ago when I was just sick and tired of every little website knowing, hey, I just looked for you know this new Lego toy and every website having it. So I started securing my data. I think uh, it's up to the people to push that along. And as Jason said, you living in the States versus living overseas and the way that security data is there, I think is, is a huge eye-opener for people, is to see how other people treat your data much more respectfully than I think it's done here in the States. Yeah, I would agree. Just a, just a quick period on the end of that sentence is that, you know, uh, it's not a cause to be uh, be hysterical or totally scared, but just more to be responsible and smart about your decisions. You know, instead of a tipping point, I kind of see it like a saw blade. There'll be little, uh, you know, there'll be little failures and there'll be little uh, successes and then there'll be little failures and then little successes. But overall, the net net is uh, we're going to get stronger and stronger and smarter and smarter. So Skynet's not going to be here next week. Oh, Skynet's already here. Okay. It's called uh, gentlemen, Google. Uh, gentlemen, briefly uh, on that note, um, or maybe not now on that note, um, let me ask you each one more time. I'll thank you. And, and how do people get in touch with you if they want to? Jason? Um, just reach out to me on Jason Harris, jason.harris at us.didata.com. Great. Bradford? Uh, I'm BradfordBen.com, or just go to the Skynet, I mean Google, and uh, search for Bradford Ben or at Bradford Ben uh, on the Twitters. Terrific. And Phil, show and tell? Showandtell.com, S-H-O-W-A-N-D-T-E-L-L.com, and I'm, I'm just Phil at Showandtell.com. Terrific. Gentlemen, thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. Bear with me for one second because we just have a couple more clips that we want to show before we say goodbye for this episode. Um, as many of you know, uh, I'm involved with uh, the CES show that's coming up uh, the second week of January. Uh, we're a couple of trade shows that take place that aren't necessarily as publicized as CES, and I was just at one last week and uh, did a, uh, just a few segments of video recording to give you a sense of what some of the new IoT products are that are coming out. So this is just a taster, just three of them. Take a look at these, and we'll get back in a moment. I'm Colt Stanner from Basis. We're an Intel company. Um, what's different about our product as compared to the rest of the competitors out there is that we really make a product that's made for wearing 24 hours a day. We incorporate a number of sensors, including an optical heart rate sensor, into a slim product that is really easy to wear all day and all night. The night piece is actually really important as we are one of the few companies out there that can actually deliver insights about your sleep that include light, deep, and REM sleep. Uh, light being the transition between deep and REM, as, re as deep is really showing you your body rejuvenation and REM showing your mind rejuvenation, both of which incredibly important to making sure that you have the best day possible after your sleep. How do people find out about it? Where do they go? Come to mybasis.com. Thanks. Thanks. 
Insights. I'm Ben Jacobs, co-founder and CEO of Whistle. And we're here to talk about our latest product. This is the Whistle GPS Pet Tracker. It's a location activity monitor for your dog and your cat. But if your dog's still run away, you can know right away and get a text. Um, if they're with a dog walker, then great. You can make sure they get home safely. But if they got out of that open window or that open door, you can make sure to find them wherever they are. Uh, the product's available now. You can find us at whistle.com. That's W-H-I-S-T-L-E.com, just whistle.com. And it's $79 um, with a small monthly fee. Terrific. Thanks very much. Thank you. Ready to go. So this is the Roost Smart Battery. It's a battery that is transforms a smoke detector into a smart smoke detector. And it's quite unique. It's got two pieces. It has a microprocessor and a Wi-Fi chip in the wireless module. There's two lithium batteries and a transducer sensor in the top half. This is recyclable after five years. Um, snaps together. The way that it works is that you download the Roost app on your smartphone, connect this battery to your home Wi-Fi, and then place the smoke the battery in an existing smoke alarm. Push the test button, and you get an alert on your smartphone whenever the, whenever the smoke alarm goes off. It's available at today at Roost site, GetRoost.com, Amazon, as well as Home Depot. And from a standpoint of, um, you know, it's available now, it's doing great. We just started shipping it actually two weeks ago, so ready to go. Fascinating stuff, and you should look forward to seeing some more of that, a lot more of that, actually, when I'm at the CES show in January. Um, that'll be our next episode right after the start of the new year. So thank you for, very much for joining us and my panel of experts. Um, that's it for this episode of Connected, Everything IoT. I'm David Danto. Uh, wish you uh, the best of everything till the next time. Take care. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation.